Happy Easter. Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Isaiah. We're in chapter 53, and we'll be reading verses 10 through 12. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. May God bless this reading. You may be seated. Well, we started in Isaiah 53 last week. We're going to finish that. Um, If you're not familiar with the prophet Isaiah, he wrote and prophesied uh, somewhere around six to 800 years before Jesus. Um, And so the passage that we read the end of today, in light of the uh, centuries between him and Christ, is a remarkable passage Uh, We read the first nine verses of it last week. We're talking about the last three of it this week. But in amazing detail, Isaiah says, this is what God's Messiah, the servant who will ultimately usher in God's salvation, this is what his life is going to be like. Right? And last week we talked about how he's not going to be famous. He's not going to be something that when you look at him, you would think he's something great. He's not going to be of some kind of a, earthly royal descent he's actually going to be unimpressed unimpressible when you look at him there's nothing about his appearance that would draw you to him in fact he's actually going to be despised he's going to be well acquainted with grief well acquainted with grief a man of many sorrows and this was the messianic prophecy of Isaiah that we read last week. And of course, we on this side of Christ's life and death and cross and resurrection from the grave, we understand so clearly how Isaiah was speaking forward about Jesus who was going to come. And so we also see in this passage the resurrection spoken of very briefly. And we want to attach that truth to what we know from Luke and the other Gospels of Christ evacuating the grave after his death, rising again and being alive for many to see. So I'm going to read again Isaiah 53, 10, 11, and 12, and then we're going to jump in this morning. So here we are, Isaiah 53:10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Let's go to the Lord in prayer this morning before we continue. God, our Father, we come humbly this morning. 
with gratitude in our hearts. God, I admit as a, a frail, fractured, weak man, I have complained a lot in the last couple of weeks. I have seen what I thought was a good plan upended and your plan put in place to my own confusion and frustration and my own sin has come out in that. And God, I know many of us endure things on a daily and weekly basis that push us to the edge of our limits and we lose it. Whether we lose it in anxiety or we lose it in anger or we lose it in apathy or we lose it in a bottle or we lose it in a pill or we lose it in a, in a screen or in a magazine, God, we are prone to weakness. We cannot manage this life on our own. God, some of us are slow to come to the place where we admit that. And Lord, we know that your kindness to us helps us to see that we are people in need of repentance. God, that we are not strong enough, we are not able, that even if we were swift and powerful and mighty, that God, even with those strengths, we could not attain salvation for ourselves. We needed another, and he was provided for us. God, your only son, Jesus Christ, sent to live as one of us so that he could die as one of us, so that he could rise and give us the life that we couldn't get on our own. We celebrate that today. We recognize the heaviness of that today. And we ask, please, by your spirit, that you would usher us into the truth of your scripture. Open our hearts, God. Lead us from doubt to belief. Lead us from... from uh, darkness to light lead us from a lack of clarity into the beautiful place of seeing you our whole life depends on being able to see jesus and we pray that that would happen today through your word in christ's name we pray amen amen so we see this prophecy from isaiah and we know through the life of jesus that it was lived up to Right? We know that Jesus was a man acquainted with grief, not just on the Passion Week like we talked about last week, but also in his very being, in his very coming. The all-eternal God omnipotent who had lived from before time even began suddenly was born in a dirty manger and had flesh and blood and had to learn and had to, had to stumble and had to skin his knee and had to begin to speak. And, and all of these limits were placed on the unlimited God when he came as a man in flesh and blood. Jesus was not just a man, but he was a poor man. Jesus was not just some kind of middle guy. He was one who suffered some of the worst fates that mankind could suffer. His family rejected him. His friends eventually turned their back on him. His very country, the people he had came to save, turned him over to the oppressive invading army so that they might murder him. This was the disposition of the Savior when he came to do what we could not do. Jesus faced the shame of having an unwed teenaged mother. Jesus faced the shame of having a dad that wasn't really his dad. Jesus faced the shame of having brothers doubt his ministry and, and, and want to take him away from the crowds because they thought he was crazy. Jesus' closest followers, the 12 disciples, were a bunch of misfits, and they were extremely slow to learn. It's like almost as slow as me. That's how slow they were to learn about who Jesus was. That's how thick their dumb heads were. They just didn't get it time in and time out again and again. 
But we see in the midst of this life that Jesus did something that no other prophet before him did, that he spoke with such tender mercy that he attracted those who thought God was against them and he repelled those who thought God was for them. You cannot miss this about Jesus, that those who were told you can't come close to God, Jesus got close to. And those who sold themselves on their own righteousness, on their own piety, on their own religious duties being achieved for God, those were the ones that Jesus pushed back against the most. They're known as Pharisees and scribes and Sadducees. These guys proclaimed that they knew how to impress God with their deeds, and Jesus was not impressed with their deeds. Why? Because he saw in their hearts. He saw that they had no true interest in loving God, but rather that they simply wanted to impress one another and the crowd that was watching. And Jesus said, this is not the way that I have come to establish the kingdom of heaven on earth. In the company of Jesus were many women and many children. In a day and an age where women and children were dismissed, were not educated, and were seldom taken care of, Jesus established a new order and said, no, let the children come to me. We saw even his disciples wanted to push them away, and he rebuked his own disciples, saying, the kids need to come to me, because you guys need faith like these kids need or have. Simple belief, trusting in one to provide for them. He welcomed women. We see in Christ's ministry that women were significant and important in a day when Jewish leaders would wake up in the morning and thank God for two things. Number one, thank you, God, that I'm a man, and thank you, God, that I'm a Jew. That was in their morning prayer. And Jesus came into that situation and scenario and said, women are precious in the sight of God. Do not push them aside like the culture tends to do. And so Jesus as he did this ministry, as he, as he pushed back against the religious uh, uh, section of, sector of his day and as he welcomed the sinners into his company, there was a swelling that began to happen. The crowds began to tell of this great man. They said he's not much to look at, but look what he did for me and for my friend and look who he's welcoming and Come and hear what he said to me. We see in John chapter 4, a woman at the well who had had five husbands and was living with another man who wasn't her husband at the time. Jesus read her mail, so to say. He talked with her just like I'm talking to you today. And he said, I, I know what your life is like. I know the sin and the guilt and the remorse that you're filled with. I know why you're here at the well in the middle of the heat of the day when no one else is here because they all come in the morning or the afternoon because it's hot right now. I know why you're here. It's because you don't want your friends to see you. You don't want the mocking and the driding that your citizens in your local town bring to you. But I tell you, everything that you thirst for, you will find in me. Everything that your soul longs for, what you're searching for in all these men, all of the approval that you're wanting from your village folks, you will not get it, but I am here today to fill your soul with living water. Jesus brought this message again and again, and because of that message, there was a swelling of people that began to gather around Jesus. They sat on mountainsides, hungry, without anything to eat, just so they could hear the man preach the kingdom of God. And then he fed their hungry bellies after he fed their starving souls. 
And time after time again, Jesus continued to point these crowds to the fact that there was a kingdom that was coming that was not of this world. And that that kingdom was going to come through his doing. And as this swelling happened in and around Israel, so we see in Galilee and also times when Jesus is in Jerusalem, this, this crowd continues to gather. They think, like you and I are prone to think, that this Jesus is here to do something to get me a better physical situation. They thought Jesus was there to deliver them from political oppression. They thought Jesus' primary work was to feed their hungry bellies and fill their empty pockets. They, they, they were led towards a belief in Jesus for a physical deliverance from the problems of this world, from the problems of this time, from the problems not within, but without. And we see in the Passion Week, the crowd swells so large that Jesus enters Jerusalem riding on a donkey, and people are laying down their branches, and they're laying down their cloaks, and they're crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Their declaration was, here is our deliverance. They walked into an occupied Jerusalem with the idea that it would no longer be occupied by Rome, that they would be delivered through his coming. And they thought that Jesus was coming to dethrone a governor and to take Jerusalem back from Rome to establish it again as Israel's capital. But what Jesus did when the week began to come to a close was a dramatic letdown to all of the expectations about his deliverance the people thought he was going to bring. We know on Monday, Thursday, the day before Good Friday, Jesus went into an upper room. He talked with his disciples. He washed their feet, every one of them, Judas included. And he said to them, take this bread. It's my body broken for you. And take this cup. It's my blood poured out for you. It's the cup of a new covenant. And even in that time, the disciples didn't quite understand what Jesus was about to do. Finally, Judas betrays Jesus. They're in the garden, a familiar prayer spot for Jesus. And one of his closest friends comes up and betrays him with a kiss. And the Roman guard comes and takes Jesus away. And they bring him to this false trial on Friday. All day long, Jesus is accused of things that he had never done. All day long, Jesus is brought to trial for events that people could not put together. And they said, he's spoken things against the throne, and he's spoken things against Jerusalem. And all along, Jesus brought no defense for himself. Just like we read in Isaiah 53, he was like a lamb, silent, before his shearers. And of course, we know that Pilate, the governor, who was looking to save his own neck, did what the crowd called him out to do. He let Jesus be traded for an insurrectionist criminal so that Jesus, instead of the criminal, 
would be beaten and crucified. And in Luke chapter 23, towards the end of the chapter, we pick up the story after Jesus is led out to the place called the Skull, to Golgotha. In verse 44 of Luke 23, it says this, it was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. That's middle of the day when the sun's light failed. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw that he, what had taken place, they returned home, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances. How many? All his acquaintances. And the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Verse 50, now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action. And he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down, wrapped it in a linen shroud, and laid it in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath day, they rested according to the commandment. The Sabbath day being Saturday for them was the day that Jesus laid in a tomb. And this, for me, maybe for you, I'm not sure, is one of the most relatable days in the entire Passion Week. Because this was the day where it seemed all hope was lost. This was the day where the promise of a good life hadn't come. This was the day where there was no physical Jesus to touch and to hear and to run to and to cry upon. This was the day where it seemed like death was winning. I relate to this day. It seems today that death is winning. It seems today that Jesus is far from me. It seems today that all the things that I hoped that God would give me as a part of His promises, they're not happening. I don't have what I want to have. All of the things that we long for, all of the physical salvations that we hope in, they're not here. We relate with Saturday with such significance because of the darkness that we walk in day in and day out. And sometimes we stare at this thing to try to find light and distract us from how dark it is. Right? We lose ourselves in all of our entertainments, and I love entertainment, and it's great, and I love food, and it's great, and coffee, and it's great, all these things, but so often we are distracted and pulled away from the real depth of lack and loss and heartache that we feel on Saturday. It seems like he's dead sometimes, and we wonder if what he promised is really going to happen. And so maybe Easter's a tough pill to swallow 
because we just speak of resurrection and life and glory and yet you're in death. So we cannot pass over Saturday. We have to look it dead in the eyes and say, Jesus died so that the death that I feel would receive the final death blow once and for all. It doesn't mean ignore the death. It doesn't mean ignore the lack and the hardship and the suffering and the, and the moments of pain in your life. It means look at them and know that there is redemption because Jesus was dead for you and Jesus rose for you. Can you imagine the disciples on this day? What a dark day. What a dark day. Just the night before, Peter had stood at a fire warming his hands and a little girl came up and said, hey, you hang out with Jesus a lot, don't you? And he's like, yo, not me, some other guy. Right? And then Jesus is dead and gone and Peter is in grief and sorrow. So much grief and sorrow, Judas was led to the point of ending it for himself because of the weight of the loss of Jesus and the fact that he had betrayed the Son of God. Isaiah 52, 12, like we read before, right in the middle it says, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Jesus really lived. And Jesus really died. He was literally, physically entombed he was wrapped in cloths like a mummy and laid behind a rock which was sealed by the Roman seal. It was over. Jesus didn't swoon. Jesus didn't kind of faint and get taken away by his disciples. His disciples were nowhere to be found. Like cowards running for the hills, they left Jesus. There was no plan amongst the 12 or the 11 now to go and steal Jesus' body. They cowardly hid away in a room afraid for their lives. And yet we see in this prophecy from Isaiah and other places in Scripture that all of this was exactly according to plan every last bit of it. Isaiah 53.10, again, it says, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring and prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. We see two times in this verse the phrase, the will of the Lord. It was the will of the Lord to crush Jesus and the will of the Lord prospered in the hand of Jesus. These seemingly non-compatible sentences work hand in hand in the death of Jesus Christ. It was the will of God that Jesus would be crushed. That's not a nice word. It's not an easy word. It's a death word, it's a dark word, and it's a heavy word. It's a Saturday word. He's in the tomb. He was crushed. 
And yet, the will of the Lord prospered in the very hand of Jesus. It's interesting, the early church, who was shocked at everything that happened, in particular the resurrection and the, the birth of the early church that happened in Jerusalem after the resurrection of Jesus because suddenly the cowardly disciples stood up in front of everybody and said, Jesus is alive, right? The guys that hid, that were afraid for their lives, stood up boldly in front of anybody and everybody to let the, the whole world know that Jesus was alive. That church exploded, and in the midst of that, they understood deeply that God had intended for Jesus to die that it was a part of his plan. Acts 4.28 bears this out where the, the disciples have gathered, the, the early church had gathered after uh, Peter and uh, John were uh, questioned for the healing of a man. And then they were let loose. They were, they were let go after that moment and everybody got together as a church and they began to pray. And in that prayer and in that moment, they said of the situation of Jesus being killed, they said, God... You did this, whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place, Acts 4.28 says. They understood that the crushing of Jesus and the prospering of God's will in the hands of Jesus was one and the same. That it had to happen in order to fulfill the plan of God. And what was the will of the Lord? Well, in Isaiah 53.10, right sandwiched between the will of the Lord to crush him and the will of the Lord prospered in his hand, sandwiched right in between there, we find this sentence. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord was to crush Jesus. And the will of the Lord prospered in the hand of Jesus because the will of the Lord was to make an offering for your guilt. This is the gospel that we in ourselves, born in the image of God, made and created by Him by hand, rebelled like that beautiful prayer that Kelly read earlier today, treason, the cosmic revolting, that we did as God's people saying, you don't get to tell me what to do and who I am and what's right and wrong. I will choose that for myself. All of this has led us to a place of guilt. And you know what guilt feels like, right? Guilt so often is that thing that does not allow relationships to continue in your life. Guilt is a wedge between Two different parties. I've experienced this because of my grave sins against many people, and I'm sure you've experienced this as well. You might be sitting here right now thinking of a situation that you know there is separation because of guilt. Whether it's real guilt or perceived guilt or guilt that hasn't been forgiven, guilt that's been confessed but the retribution hasn't been accepted and so uh, reconciliation hasn't happened, there's something in the way of relationship. And this is the same situation with us and our Creator that guilt stands between us and Him. The brokenness of relationship is due to our guilt. Isaiah prophesied, the early church believed 
that it was the will of God to crush Jesus. Why? So that he could take my place. So that all of my guilt and all of your guilt could be put on Jesus so that, like Isaiah prophesied, he would be numbered with the transgressors so that the sinless one would bear all our sin so that he who had no guilt, he had no uh, friction between him and God. There was no division. There was no separation. He was always maintaining a perfect relationship with the Heavenly Father, something that we have never done and never can do until we're made new once and for all. Jesus, the guiltless one, was made guilt for you. All of the guilt that is on me was put on Jesus. He was an offering for guilt. And just like when a prison sentence is served, when somebody is deemed guilty and then locked up for X amount of years, once the years come to an end, the guilt is gone. Once the time has been served, once the penalty has been paid, Maybe it's a simple fine because you speed too much. Whatever has removed the guilt, that's what Jesus did on a cross. Because you were due to pay for your own sin, and Jesus said, I'll pay for it. Willingly, sacrificially, he went and died on the cross. And what the resurrection declares for us because of the power of God raising Jesus from the dead is a bold and clear statement from heaven above saying the sentence has been completely paid. Jesus has met all requirements. He has once and for all driven a death spike into death and now he lives to make the guilty free. The resurrection is the guaranteed promise being fulfilled that what God said he would do, he did indeed do. I want you to hear something so clearly that it is because of the great love of God, because he is faithful, because he is good, because he is loving and kind and gracious, he sent his son for broken and guilty sinners like me and you. This happened so that you might be free of guilt, so that you could be ushered into an unhindered relationship with your Creator, so that once and for all, that wall that divides you, that relationship that is fractured could be healed, that you might call Abba Father, that you might reach out and be heard and be seen and know the God of your creation. This is why Jesus came. This is what he did. This is what was necessary. This is how far broken we were that Jesus had to go to this length to bring our redemption. This is what our tattered creation desperately longs for. And it is the glory of God that he has done this work. There is no other historical moment that can match the passion of Jesus. 
There is no figure in all of history that stands taller than Jesus. No king who has ever reigned on the earth has gone farther than Jesus. No warrior who has ever fought a battle has fought harder. No other death has more meaning than the death of Jesus. And it absolutely achieved that which God had willed for it to achieve. Isaiah 53, 11, out of the anguish of his soul shall he see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Jesus alone has done this work, and because of this truth, he alone is worthy of all glory and honor and worship and praise. If you have a Bible, I want you to turn to Revelation 5 as we close there. We'll have the words on the screen as well, or you can look at it in your app. In the book of Revelation, the Apostle John is given a vision. In chapter 4, this vision begins with seeing a throne. It's the most spectacular thing John has ever seen. And seated on the throne is one who is more glorious than any being that has ever existed. And seated around the throne are 24 elders, and flying around the throne are these wicked cool creatures with eyes and wings and just awesome glory. And everything that surrounds the throne is fixed on the throne and it's crying out, you're holy and you're worthy and there is nothing that can compare to you. John is given this vision of heaven. But in Revelation chapter 5, he who is seated on a throne has a scroll in his hand and it's sealed with seven seals and this scroll represents all of the mysterious and secret hidden plan of God for all of human history. And I want to pick this up from verse 1 in Revelation 5. It says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel, not just an angel, but a strong one, proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, 
each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. They had been singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, and their tune changed. They sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory. And as if that weren't enough, I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and they worshiped. Jesus is the Lamb who was slain. And there he was in heaven standing because he overcame death he rose from the dead and he's alive right now and will be forever that is why the tune of all of heaven changed because of the lamb who was slain to remove our guilt everything that he does everything that he has ever done is always worthy of this glory and so today I beg you to look to this Jesus. Look to the one who came for you and suffered through a life of grief and rejection. Look to the one who set the record straight on what God was like by loving the broken like no one ever had before. Look to the one who confronted the arrogance of religion and called women and men and children everywhere toward humble repentance. Look to the one who was betrayed by his best friend, sold by his own countrymen, who was a scapegoat for a cowardly governor, who was killed by a Roman battalion. He was rejected for you and punished in your place. And he shed his blood on that cross to make the guilty free. Look to the one who died only so that he will live again. Who the one who was raised in power, who emptied the grave of its death, who did all of the work that we could not do in order to give us a gracious salvation that we could not earn. On Easter and on every day, trust only in this Jesus. Trust your life and your past and your daily struggles and your future and all of your eternity on Jesus Christ. And say in the words of this age-old hymn, I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. Let's pray. Jesus, you are worthy. You are worthy. You are worthy. You are worthy. We are not worthy. You are worthy. All of the kings of this world are not worthy, Jesus. You are worthy. All of the great men and women in all of history are not worthy. Jesus, you are worthy of all of heaven's praises, of all of the glory and honor and might and wisdom and strength, 
of all eternity, past and future. Because you gave your life for us. And Jesus, may we understand the significance of all of this for us, that it was for us and it was because of us that you went because we needed it and you went because you lovingly were willing to give your life for us. On this day and on every day, Jesus, we worship the only one worthy. And God, whether we're doubter or skeptic or saint or struggling saint, wherever we are, Lord, might we look on him who finished the work. We know that you did it for us. And we worship you for it. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.